Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, Sean here, speech pathologist and co-founder of the DLD project. Should Australia introduce universal screening for developmental language disorder? How common is dyslexia co-occurring alongside DLD? In this episode of the Talking DLD podcast, we're talking language screening with special guest, Dr. Tiffany Hogan, director of the Speech and Language Literacy Lab and professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. So welcome, Tiffany, to the Talking DLD podcast. I'd love if you could introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us about your connection to DLD. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. So excited to work with you in the past. And my experience with DLD is that I'm a clinical speech language pathologist, and I worked in schools and hospitals uh, prior to becoming a researcher. And clinically, I was my one of my first tasks as a brand new speech pathologist was to create a language literacy small group instruction for children who were on our waiting list. So we had children on a waiting list for about six months waiting for therapy, and we wanted to provide them some support. So we had parent training and language development, and then we had this language literacy support that we were providing in small groups. And in that uh, um, project, I was able to learn more about DLD and the connection with DLD and literacy. And it really drove me to think more about the whole child because when I was taking courses, I would take a course in speech sound disorder, take a course in language disorder, if I was lucky, I didn't have this course, but a lot of people have a course in literacy disorder. Mm -hmm. And then you go and see the child and you think like, oh, this is one child in front of me who has all of these difficulties. Now, how do I figure out what to do first, next? How do I handle the child as a whole? So that drove me to become more interested in the early language and speech foundations that a child has and how does that lead to their literacy over time? And I was then able to go on and get the PhD and work on some longitudinal studies of language. And I became interested in this connection between DLD and dyslexia and also school-based practices. Um, And Sean, I worked with you initially um, on some of the advocacy work in DLD, but also I had you as a guest on my podcast, the See, Hear, Speak podcast. It was so fantastic to have you. So it's come full circle and I feel very honored to be asked to be on this podcast with you. It's uh, interview the podcaster today, isn't it? <laughs> it's a different situation. I'm in the hot seat now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's quite weird, isn't it? But I've yes. I learned a lot through um, uh, being interviewed by you for See, Here Speak. So I'll make sure that I'll pop a link into that chat perhaps and, and, and into the See, Here Speak webpage so that if people are interested in following up and hearing you do your do you do your thing? Oh, thank <laughs> they you. They can follow along. That would be fabulous. So your research straddles both the DLD and dyslexia world, which is such an interesting space because our listeners are often educators as well as speech pathologists and families. So what do you think those of us supporting people with DLD really could learn from the dyslexia world? That's a great question. Uh, you know, straddling both of those worlds has been such an interesting 
phenomenon for me because I've seen that in many cases, the, ch the dyslexia world is much farther ahead in their advocacy. And when in the longitudinal studies I've done, we've, we consistently find that children with DLD have about a 50% chance of meeting the cut point for having dyslexia. Mm. So DLD being the problem, you know, understanding and, and using language, whereas dyslexia is difficulty connecting sounds and letters together to decode words. Yeah. But we see that it's not all children with DLD that have that. It's about 50%. And the range is, you know, is, you know, about 20 to 70 is, is percent. So it can be higher depending on some populations and lower. But I think it's important as clinicians to realize that children with DLD have a high likelihood of having dyslexia and that DLD, you know, the treatment for DLD being, you know, focusing on that comprehension and language, but the treatment for dyslexia is systematic explicit instruction and letter sound correspondence. So some children need both of those. And if the speech pathologist isn't giving the direct instruction for dyslexia, I think a speech pathologist can be an advocate early on for ensuring that the child's decoding skills are being evaluated and getting appropriate instruction. And I say the same thing when I'm talking to those who focus more on dyslexia. We need to think about children with dyslexia, you know, getting the appropriate instruction in DLD. But what I've noticed about the fields is that the field of dyslexia is further along in advocacy and I think a, more of a structure. So they have the International Dyslexia Association, which has chapters all over. The word dyslexia is more, in, uh, you know, known by the layperson. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misunderstandings about it, but at least that's known, whereas DLD, we'd be thrilled if that was a common household yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. name. And, and that's exactly. our goal, right? That's our goal. Uh, but what's shocked me about is that DLD and dyslexia have a, a similar prevalence. So the fact that DLD isn't more of a household name and more well understood is surprising considering the prevalence being about the same, which is 10 to 20 percent, you know, of the population, uh, depending on, you know, the cut points that you have. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, straddling those, I think a lot about uh, how can we learn from the dyslexia advocacy uh, mm -hmm. realm? Like, how do we advocate for these children? How do we create an infrastructure and training program like what you're trying to do, you know, with the with Project DLD is getting the word out there and translating the science into practice. I think we have a long way to go there in DLD and uh, in dyslexia, they've 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 traveled that path and we can learn from the path and what they've discovered. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That general awareness of dyslexia is, is, is much greater than 10 or 20 years ago, isn't it? You know, there's definitely more um, use of the term in general conversation. And I, I keep on coming back to the fact that DLD really has a rebranding, you know, in, in 2017. So we're still riding that wave of, of, clinician awareness and then um, family awareness, which then leads to that general population awareness. Um, but I think that there's a lot, as you say, we can learn. I, I always come back to the fact that, uh, you know, I know that clinically children with DLD can have dyslexia or not. Um, but in my work, I only ever seem to see the kids with DLD and dyslexia. So for me, the children who I see as DLD will have difficulties with reading but that may not in fact be the case or that with really good quality support can do really well and I've got a number of those children who are you know approaching adolescence with some really lovely skills uh, but I'm I as you said I'm really conscious of my little ease you know mm -hmm. as soon as I get that DLD diagnosis in the young ones we're looking at phonological awareness skills yes. and school readiness skills because if there's those um, pre-literacy skills we can work on and strengthen I mean that's where we want to be 
Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, you bring up a good point too. What we see across the studies is in clinical populations, the overlap is much higher yeah. than when we do the epidemiologic studies where kind of grab all the kids all who have difficulty. Kids, yeah. yeah. So you do see, I think that 50% is conservative um, mm. estimate when you think about the clinical field, which you're going to see a lot higher of the co-occurrence yeah. happening. And I think because sometimes I've, I can think of one young man that I've, I know who they were picked up for dyslexia first at around six or seven, and it wasn't until they were an adolescent that they were diagnosed with DLD. So their identity was in that dyslexia to start with, but then moving into adolescence, it actually didn't fully explain their needs. And so the, they saw a speech pathologist and were able to get the language specific support, but they kind of hadn't had all of that up until high school, which is... Mm -hmm another issue altogether. So I see that happening as well. I, I work with um, families who have children with dyslexia, similar kind of path where they have these very elaborate comprehensive evaluations, mm -hmm. but they are almost always missing language. Mm -hmm. And some of that I think has to do with even just the qualifications to give a language assessment and who feels confident to give a language assessment is that you know clinical psychologists who are doing these assessments diagnosticians don't always have the self you know the clinical evaluation of language fundamentals or any of the comprehensive kind of, of language evaluations in their back pocket and even though they're giving some language assessments through their uh, battery they don't interpret them as such so I do think it's kind of where we can get a lot more uh, collaboration uh, together and there's a clinic here that that includes a speech language pathologist amongst everything else. And they probably give the most, they do, they give the most uh, comprehensive because they have that speech language pathologist in the mix. Oh, look, and we've been talking about this uh, offline, but you know, the, uh, with and with other people as well, but the idea of bringing psychology and speech pathology together in this space is so key because we look at things slightly differently. And often it's the psychologist, particularly in Australia, we might talk about an educational psychologist. I'm not sure if that's a term you use in the US, yes. but mm -hmm. yeah, that an educational psychologist might be more the one that looks at the specific learning um, disability, like a dyslexia or a, um, dyscalculia, what, whatever it might be. Um, but speech pathologists also have a role to play in that and it's actually bringing those um, perfect partners together to say actually how can we work together and and build the best possible profile for these young people I think that's so important because I see these educational psychologists you know and, and clinicians they will evaluate for like you said dyscalculia dyslexia ADHD even yes yeah but they're leaving out this critical component mm. that is comorbid with everything and that yep. is the DLD portion so I think that's we have to work together uh and I, I was also going to say one thing we've learned from dyslexia and the advocacy too is that with dyslexia it doesn't seem to be as owned by one field you know mm. you have educators you have special educators. if anyone's more special educators but you also have the the educational psychologists a lot of people coming together whereas dld i think has been owned by speech language pathology for a very long time and so that's one field and you just don't have those connections as much and so i think the more we collaborate with other fields the more broadly the term will be you know available to advocate and people will know it but one area I know that you have looked really closely at is the concept of screening. Um, can you explain to our listeners what is meant by screening as a concept? 
you know, this is a nice dovetail from the, the question you had about DLD and dyslexia, because what I've thought about in screening has a lot to do with the work I've done in dyslexia. So in the United States, we have a grassroots movement that came from parents to advocate for better screening of dyslexia in the schools systems here. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, I've thought more deeply about you know, screening for DLD at the same time. And screening for DLD hasn't really been something that's been done, at least here in the United States, regularly. And when I say screening, I mean really um, a measure that's going to capture individual differences amongst children. And it's a first pass to say if a child shows problems in this short, typically you want a screener, it doesn't have to be, but typically you want a screener to be short. Yep and you want it to have few items and you want it to be able to be given very efficiently to a large group of children. So we've been working on a classroom-based screener. So it's giving all the children at once. And so it's about 20 minutes to assess 20 kids. And it gives you a first pass to say who might have problems, who might be at risk. And it's really that risk profile. So it's saying, okay, you're at risk and you need further testing. So a screening is going to be that first pass where you say, did you fail or did you pass based on your, you know, where your criteria is, where your cut point is. So if you have a 20 item screener, maybe you say you found out through research studies that the cut points at 10 or seven, you cut it off, whoever's mm -hmm. below seven, then what you want to do is test them further. Yes. And so it's just that very first pass. And what that has happened here through parent and teacher report is like that's a way of screening where the teacher would say mm, I have some concerns about this child so the screening comes from parents or teachers but what we found is that that can create a biased screen so you have you know if you're waiting for parents or teachers to say I'm concerned they may pick up on other issues that aren't language so what we found in the United States is that only about 50% on average of children have DLD when we do these large epidemiologic studies actually have a diagnosis or have even been seen or even mm -hmm. have parents or teachers that are concerned. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of shocking. You're like, and we looked Absolutely. at several factors. You know, you might hypothesize, well, maybe it's severity. Like the kids who are most severe are the ones that are getting services. We did not find that. Uh, maybe it has to do something with um, a comorbidity. And that is something we did start to find is that you're more likely to have help if you had a speech sound disorder. That's more, maybe more obvious. And then the parents and teachers say, oh, they're having trouble mis, you know, misarticulating sounds. Then they get a, a full evaluation. Lo and behold, they find the language issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the other factor, there were two other factors in a, a fascinating study by Tammy Spaulding here in the US, where she found that two factors that predicted who received services, number one, did they have an executive function or ADHD comorbidity? So this would be a child who's maybe showing behavior disruption in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So trouble sitting still, paying attention, they were referred and then they ended up having language impairment as well, or maybe instead of. Um, the other one was if a parent, in this case, the study was mother's education level was high. So it's hypothesized that maybe those parents were 
uh, educating themselves on language development or were or more likely or had the resources to advocate for children. And that's really unacceptable in my view that mm -hmm. you'd have to have a comorbidity or you'd have to have you know parent education factor into these children receiving services. So to eliminate some of those parent teacher biases for referral, what we're proposing is and working on now within a National Institutes of Health grant is to screen all children in kindergarten. That's our first year of formal education here to screen them in kindergarten. And we're trying to tie into this dyslexia laws because the dyslexia laws across the states are saying you have to screen for dyslexia in kindergarten. And teachers and educators are getting a lot of training. What does that look like? How can we screen? How do we fit this into our uh, program? And I'm advocating that if you're going to screen for dyslexia, you need to right there at the same time screen for DLD. And that screening can take place, you know, in a variety of ways. The, the ways we've looked at is to do a parent or teacher. We, we mainly work with teachers, but do a teacher questionnaire, the SLS. Um, and that's been validated as having good sensitivity and specificity for determining who's at risk for DLD. And then we also have developed um, more of receptive language assessment where they look at, hear a complex sentence, look at a picture, uh, kind of like the TROG, but it's oh, been yeah. developed in a group format. Mm -hmm. um, and we're looking to see how well that is a first pass of, of uh, language skills so that then we can see, okay, this child failed now we need to test them further. What's complicating matters for us is thinking about multi-language users and how does that factor in with screening and uh, you know a lot of great work in that area but just trying to think about a screening in that way. Uh, screening can bring up a lot of you know a lot of other issues like for instance uh, you know once you screen how do you do the follow-up testing? Who does the follow-up testing? Do you have the resources for the follow-up testing? Beyond that, once you, ideally, if you do screening and follow-up testing, you're going to find all the kids in your school who have DLD. Okay, so that would be approximately 10%. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do you, or even a little higher. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do with those kids then? You know, if, if in the, historically only half of them are being served, now you're going to double your caseload. How, yeah. how is that caseload managed? So what we've been doing to tackle those issues is we have a grant, we're using a model from the healthcare field, implementation science. That's how to think about how do you implement within a larger system or framework, um, these larger issues of screening, diagnostics, treatment. And one of the ways you do that is to first start by doing a needs assessment and think about barriers and facilitators and thinking about the context because screening done in one district and how they handle you know, the best approach to screening diagnostics and treatment might look different than another district based on the context yep. they have. So we're trying to figure out what are some of the ways to set up a better systematic approach to identify and then treat and support these children with DLD. It sounds fantastic and it's I think screening can be a really powerful tool can't it for early identification of DLD it's one of those areas that I think that we've all talked about and in fact I actually suggest that there's probably a number of speech pathologists out there who already are going into school settings and screening already and we've got lots of information around screening in other conditions I mean in Australia we've got universal neonatal hearing screening so within the first few days of birth all bulbs will get screened. And so early identification of hearing loss has significantly improved. And so these children are getting support for that sensory neural hearing loss straight away. Basically, it's a known variable. But what, what does the research actually say currently about screening for DLD? It's one of those I hear a lot about um, do it 
don't do it. There's obviously some pros from, you know, looking at other conditions, as I've just said. What does the research currently say and why is it still a bit of an area of discussion? I think it has to do uh, with two things. One, I think there is a sensitive period currently with the measures we have for mm -hmm. DLD where they're more sensitive or specific to DLD at certain age ranges. Yes. So screening early on can create, so well, any screening measure, we measure it by what's called the sensitivity and the specificity. And the sensitivity is how sensitive is that measure? How correct is it identifying who has a condition like DLD? Mm -hmm. And then that's sensitivity. Specificity is how correct is the measure at determining accurately that a child doesn't have DLD. And that's a yin and yang there, because if you have a cut point, let's go back to the 20 point screener. If you have a 20 point screener and you say, okay, I want to capture as many kids as I can who have DLD. I really want to capture them. Maybe you have a very liberal cut point and maybe you say, I'm just going to take the lower third of the class doing that. You're clearly going to over identify. You're going to have a lot of false positives. Mm -hmm. So when you then start to, to do the diagnostics, you're going to have um, several children that you misidentify early on so you the screener said they're at risk but they're not but maybe you make that choice because you want to catch everyone who has DLD so that means that screener has some good sensitivity but poor specificity because you're going to have a lot of kids that you say have DLD but they don't and vice versa um, but you I'd rather do that and be a little more cautious but there is that yin and yang that goes on and that's really at the heart of a lot of our discussions about when should you screen and what does that look like that's one factor because if you screen too early let's say a two-year if you can imagine two-year-olds screening them it's you're going to have to do a there's needs to be more research although there are people doing research in that area mm. it's really about developing the right measure and having the right cut point but that's also very tricky at two because the variability is so mm. wide yep. you know i think it's like 25 words to 225 words just yep. for even the words at that age right so you have this huge range so the more variable typical development is the harder it is to pick out those kids who are struggling yep. especially in a screening protocol because the screening protocol you're going to test everyone and you're going to get that first pass so you're going to have a ton of false positives uh, one way to get around that it, the way we do it here in our early intervention is we look for multiple signs of risk mm -hmm. and then we start to then refer those children and 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 do some parent training and there's some ways to do that I think that's a big part of the discussion is when do we screen? Screenings for DLD have found to be very, have good sensitivity and specificity starting around five or six, which is right at the time of our kindergarten age. So yeah. solidly, we can be confident. This is actually in contrast to dyslexia, interestingly. So dyslexia, you, you know, testing in kindergarten, you're going to have poor sensitivity and specificity than testing a little bit later because they need to have some exposure to some instruction to see how they're going to react. We don't need that with our language screeners at that age because those children unless they have had extreme deprivation have ha been exposed to language mm. so up until that five and six year age so they've had enough lang language exposure that we can then have more confidence and have better sensitivity and specificity the second issue of a big point of discussion with DLD screening is what's the infrastructure there so you don't want to screen and if you don't have an infrastructure to support those children who fail that screen, so you'd have to have an infrastructure of follow-up testing. And then you'd also have an infrastructure of once you identify them, what are you going to do? How are you going to support these kids? And we've been tackling that issue in a new grant that we just started where we're testing out a small group intervention for children who fail a screener 
who we do some follow-up testing on and we show they have difficulties and they're looking and we're a little liberal because we're going to take those that maybe don't meet this criteria fully for DLD but they're kind of in that um, border zone right where they're mm -hmm. kind of you're not feeling so great about their language but you're not maybe as confident to say they have DLD and we're taking them into small groups and then we're going to do an intervention a language-based intervention with them through the year and this is in line with the tiered system we use here in the U.S. so it's like tier one being you know the best instruction you can provide and then once you have a child who looks like they're having difficulty you'd provide them a small group instruction and then if they don't benefit from the small group instruction or respond to that instruction, then they would be, need more individualized um, instruction, which would be more like special education qualification here. But right now in the US, we have some of that system set up for children with dyslexia. So if they have word reading problems, they go into a small group, they get some extra stimulation. If they don't benefit, then they go into the special ed and get much more intensive instruction. We don't have that same system set up for DLD for language issues here. And that's what we're trying to figure out is how do we bridge that gap? Because what happens now is there can be a period of time at any period of time where a child's not getting support as a child with DLD is a bad situation because it, it's better to really have that support to talk to the parents and tell them this is what we're seeing educate teachers but anytime they don't have let's say they have a two-year gap from starting school and then they finally get you know someone going hmm I think they might have language problems and then they get referred to a speech pathologist who does a testing and says oh yeah they have language problems the damage is done in that critical yeah. period so catching them early but there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built the infrastructure is just not there right now in our U.S. system Mm -hmm. And so developing measures that have good sensitivity and specificity and that are given in an efficient way and setting up a framework that really supports this whole diagnostic process and treatment along the way, we have a lot of work to do in that way. Is that the same in the Australian system? Yeah, absolutely. And, and probably uh, similarly, we have it, it postcode bingo, depending on where you're where you live will depend oh, yes. on what you get, you know, like um, Queensland, where I live has a different service delivery for speech pathology in state systems. Um, but there's also state religious institutions and private schools, which would then have variable opportunities within that one state. And of course, then each state would be different. So if you hop across the border to New South Wales, it looks different to Victoria or Tasmania or any other state and territory would has, has a, as a variable service delivery. So from, you know, depending on where you are will depend on what you can access. And that can be incredibly variable. One thing that I think we I'd love to chat more about is if universal screening was in place, what impact do you think we could see? What, what would change from where we are now to where we could be? Well, that's a great question too. Uh, I think we could see some major change. First, I think we would see improvements in reading comprehension. These children, those, like I said, the about 50% of these children that don't have decoding problems, they can really be missed because they're plugging along in the curriculum, mm -hmm. learning letter sound connections. They look like they're reading, they are reading words, they're decoding them, but they don't understand what they're reading. Mm -hmm. So having a better tier one, tier two, and in, in better just early instruction would ideally create a stronger language basis for reading comprehension in the future. But even so, there's a lot of focus on reading comprehension. There should be. It's the you know shift from learning to read and reading to learn. We get a lot of our information through comprehension. But I think in and of itself, the child's uh, improving a child's ability early on 
to be able to uh, converse with their peers, socialize, tell stories. Uh, uh, that's important in and of itself, aside from reading instruction and reading comprehension. Uh, I think we would see an improvement in social emotional development in these children because I think they would have a support person that would uh, help them along the way. I think ideally we would also infuse some you know, overall education about DLD and individual differences and neurodiversity amongst children. If we took this model, I see that happening already in dyslexia, which I love to see is that there's a better, more, there's a demystifying of dyslexia. There's a destigmatizing of dyslexia. Uh, and the more people talk about it openly, I see that with ADHD as well. The more you talk about it and make it like, this is a natural variation in human abilities. And if we can do that for DLD, then that would provide the child, I think, less shame shame associated with their difficulties. I think that we would see that happen too. <laughs> I think having teachers more aware of individual differences in language when with the work we're doing with our teachers on teaching them how to screen for language, the byproduct of that is they start to see, oh, there's some variation here. Mm. Oh, language in and of itself is a separate factor from reading words. That's a huge aha for teachers mm. because we need to have both you know, we need assessment in both areas, but we also need instruction in both areas. And this really ties to the reading wars, to be honest, it kind of yeah. ties back into this big issue of reading and what does it entail? And, uh, you know, you have those who say, well, we need to focus on the language aspect and those who focus on word reading, what we know is you have to focus on both. Yep. And I think that a bigger picture of you know, talking more about language and individual differences in language and language development is also bringing a lot of discussions around what does it mean to have good reading instruction. Yeah. Uh, so I think there can be a lot of amazing byproducts, um, you know, to adding these screeners and setting up this infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, I just I look to um, hearing screening as an example. There's so much that um, can be done when you have when you know it's it's the not knowing and coasting along and then actually people fill in the blanks. You talk to teenagers who I've diagnosed with DLD at 15 and 16 and they've spent the entirety of their childhood and adolescence thinking that they were dumb oh. and you do a cognitive assessment. Well, I don't. The psychologist does a cognitive assessment and I look at their language skills and I'm like, well, actually you're really quite an intelligent person. You're just as intelligent as everybody else in your class. The challenge is that you use language to filter and, and you, you know, interact with the world around you. And those language skills haven't developed as we expected. We're not hundred percent sure why. So I would, I would prefer them to know that it's actually a difficulty with communication rather than them actually filling in the blanks themselves and thinking that it's to do with their cognitive capacity and developing a poor self-image, which we then know has implications for their ongoing mental health. So let's get in early and see what we can do. But one thing I wanted to go back to that I just recalled I didn't hook back into was that variability in language development in the first five years is so problematic, isn't it? And I think that for our listeners, we kind of glossed over it because we both knew, but that language development, often children aren't obviously talking until sort of their first birthdays or older. And then there's that huge variability around toddlerhood when children are putting words and phrases together um, they might be speaking in sentences and then between two and five there's you know huge range of variability so picking up on these skills at, in preschool years is quite tricky and then you add that trying to pick up a screener that has the sensitivity and specificity to meet all of those variabilities it is a tricky space isn't it it's not something that it's not like people haven't tried or done or 
invested time and money in. It's something that I don't think people necessarily know until they get in and work with lots of little kids that there's this huge range of variability in typical development. So picking up when it's atypical, not going as expected is really hard. So I wanted to come back to that point because I think that you and I knew that. Yes, yes. <laughs> but some of our listeners might have been, yes. yeah, some of our listeners yes. might have been wondering, well, why? Why, why aren't we doing yeah. this younger? And we know, of course, that DLD, and we're looking at these beautiful longitudinal studies that have been done for years, that once we hit school age, language starts to stabilise. You know, we start to know that we can be more reliable. And if you've got DLD at the start of schooling, you're likely to have that for the remainder of your life. So it's... That's um, right. It's something that you can pick up earlier, but often those really severe kids, isn't it? Um, yes. But we know those kids who have mild difficulties actually often need just as much support as the kids That's who've right. got the highest level of severity. I know um, plenty of children who would have been that borderline, you know, that we do a lot of work to support them in schools just as much as we do sometimes as those who classify as severe. So, Well, I think um, you hit on the stability. I just wanted to hit on that yeah, too. That's yeah. such a critical part to really advocating for screening because if it was unstable mm. across time you might think well why do we need to screen early or we need to screen each year but really the stability of their language difficulties is so clear in every longitudinal study yes. that if a child has difficulty they need support across the schooling system yes. and then I do want to hit on to what you said about you know working with these 15 and 16 year olds you know they have such deep-seated shame associated with yeah their language problems, but I also find that in working with parents too, they have mm. internalized that they've done something wrong. Oh, I can't yes. tell you how many times yes. I talk to parents, right? And they'll say, oh, I, I, I just was talking to a parent and she's like, I, I really should have talked to him more. He was my third kid. I didn't talk to him enough. Yeah. Or I hear, you know, I, I didn't do and I didn't read enough books. I didn't do enough. They really internalize it too. Yeah. And it's just creating so much shame mm. and we need to shine a light on that shame and, and say, no, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You didn't cause this. This is an individual variation. What we can do, though, is support you yes. to help you, you know, really develop your strengths um, and then support this difficulty that you have. That's, I think, going to be a big part of demystifying and advocating for DLD as you're doing in these screenings. Yeah. Absolutely. But of course, then one of the important variables is then we, we keep coming back to the speech pathologist as such a key stakeholder in this whole process, right? Um, and I'm sure there are going to be speech pathologists listening in. And I'm sure some of those are already um, screening or planning to screen children because it is something that it is this idea that we think, well, if we can screen everybody and then we can pick up on these kids, you know, we're going to be doing such a, a good job. But as I said, there's that tension in terms of you know, the sensitivity and specificity and and what we need to be able to do as clinicians to best undertake this process. Are there certain assessments or tools that have better sensitivity and specificity that clinicians could be looking to? What sorts of things might they need to consider? Because they may, as I said, already be doing this or be planning to do this in their clinical work. Yes. Um, so we've actually been working on a paper now where we're really uh, culling the literature and also all the publishers and we're looking to see you know, what are some screeners for English speaking children yes. and what are the sensitivity and specificity so we have a paper and as part of that paper we're working finishing it up and submitting it but we created an Excel spreadsheet that is actually on my Twitter account for free that you can access yes. that has a list yes. of all the current screeners and, mm -hmm. and then it also gives what we're looking at for a screener so I think that's mm -hmm. the critical part because 
I'm not familiar with all the screeners in the world, but there are key factors you have to look at. And one is, you know, does it fit your age population? You mm-hmm. know, does it, is it validated and, you know, for your age population? Does it have good sensitivity and specificity? That's a critical factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just what, how does it handle uh, diverse learners? So does it have that, you know, those groups of children in there and how does that look? Yeah. You know, I think that I've worked with some speech pathologists who've done such a great job in looking at specific school specific screeners. Mm-hmm. And so they've created some homemade screeners that include key components. We know in kindergarten grammar is a big, you know, we have developmental norms on what children should know at that yes. age in terms of grammar. So if they aren't hitting those grammatical markers, vocabulary is a little harder to be honest because vocabulary can be influenced by experience. It's not the best marker. We really find grammar at the the kindergarten age is really the best marker mm-hmm. out there. As I mentioned, there's a, you know, a validated measure of teacher, you know, checklist kind of thing. Like these are some of the concerns you're seeing. Um, and that's fantastic too, because you can do a checklist. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some broader screeners that include kind of more overall kind of language, like hitting on all the domains of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but some of the, the speech pathologists have created their own measure. And then what they do is they'll give it and they'll they'll determine, like kind of follow the kids. They do their own study. You know, yeah. they do their clinical study and they know yeah. where their cut point is. And they have that clinical experience to say, here's where on the measure I've created and used over time, this is where I know a child has having problems and I need to follow them either red flag and kind of follow them or do some further testing. I think that's great. If a speech pathologist is doing that, I would like to see more, um, available uh, standardized and normed measures for speech pathologists to use yeah. because that would be the ideal. Yeah, uh, but there, but there's really a dearth of them out there, to be honest. It's not mm-hmm. like I can just tell you all these measures out there. I think on our checklist now, we have maybe 11 that mm-hmm. we've re- uncovered. Mm-hmm. There's also some really fantastic dynamic measures, which I think hold a lot of promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be given in a short time, but they you know, do kind of more of a test, teach, test, uh, or give cues along the way to see you know, what does the child need. And that can help you to filter out some of those false positives. Cause some of the children, they may look like they're having difficulty, but if you give them just a little bit of a hint, they're like, Oh, that's what you want from me. And then they do better. And that's going to be an indication. They likely don't have DLD. It's more um, like the testing skills in that case, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Where they that's have right. the skills to engage in a testing environment. Yeah. Totally. And we, t- we find the best screening outcomes, meaning the best sensitivity and specificity at the end of ki- towards the end of kindergarten, actually, cause that gives the child time to acclimate to the formal education environment and be able to really sit and take a test and know what does it take you know what do you need to attend to a test and even just basic things like circling what you need to we we've tried it early on and you run into a lot of problems that can really muddy the water and create more false positives than you'd like to see and one of the benefits i know from working with age range we our foundation year we'd call it you know it's called different things in different parts of australia but um often early childhood educators, they actually do have in their training uh, quite a lot of knowledge around language, you know, or yes. or they are conscious of the, you know, impact of language. It's a very different conversation when you're talking to senior secondary teachers um, because it's kind of assumed at this point that their language systems is fully formed. They basically yeah. have an adult vocabulary that's growing and that they're able to speak and understand as an adult would, but 
um, these young, you know, younger year levels, I feel like the teachers seem to be really receptive. Like it's a really big benefit of working in that age range because that was my, you know, that's been my area for such a long time um, that it's those early childhood educators that really seem to take it on board. Um, one thing I will say to our listeners is I will, if it's all right with you, Tiffany, I'll link into the podcast, that resource for the screening that you said is freely available on your Twitter account. So I'll link that for people who might be um, interested in learning more about some of the screening tools for English. Um, That's great. And also I'll tie back to this kind of theme we have here of tying back to dyslexia. So I've been yeah. a, a member mm -hmm. of a, a group that has created what's called a tools chart mm -hmm. online. We can link to that as well if you'd like. Yes, and please. that's been yeah. focused more on dyslexia and reading instruction and even math instruction. So what we've done is in, in the past 10 years, we've asked publishers to send us their assessments and then we evaluate those assessments. And then we have kind of a consumer report kind of interface online that you can mm -hmm. say, okay, I want to give a reading assessment to this age group, to this kind of population. And then you, it'll spit out, you know, what tests are available and it'll rate them. Like if you have an empty bubble, that's not good evidence. If it's a half bubble, it's okay evidence, a full kind of colored in bubble means great evidence so you can take a yeah. quick snapshot and we're doing that in the reading world and I'd love to see more of that in the language world as well I improving assessments is always going to help us in our clinical and practice and yes. I think that is more that we can kind of be transparent and good consumers of tests mm -hmm. the better we're going to use them diagnostically yeah and people ask me what is the best test for DLD is one of the most common questions I get and it's I keep coming back to it's whatever you need it to test you know you need to test what you want to test um, so you need to select the test to do that and so there's options I've given myself permission lately to be using a lot more non-standardized measures yeah. um, alongside you know my standardized assessments to look at their functional impact and ensuring that I'm not just considering numbers on a page, you know, because children are more than numbers, but it, I think it's taken me, I won't say how long I've been out of uni, but it's some time now. And uh, yeah. we, um, you know, it's taken me that long to actually say, I trust that my interpretation of my observations in a clinical setting and my um, discussions with the parents and the input from the classroom is as valid. I've always done it, but it is as valid as my standardized assessment scores. And that's taken me, yeah, as I said, quite a bit of time, but I think it's really important because you see the child as a whole you know, all the so important. As a whole. Yeah. It's so important. Uh, uh, Lena Plant, who does a lot of research and yep. testing, I love how she. It's all about purpose. Yes. And you know, if you're giving, if you're, you know, trying to screening is a purpose of screening out those who yes. don't need further testing. Diagnostic testing is to diagnose. But once a child's been diagnosed, you don't need those standardized tests. You really don't, because no. then the goal is to help them functionally communicate and functionally uh, and function in school setting. And so I agree with you. It's been it's taken me some time too to kind of let go of some of those diagnostic tests because we don't need them. Uh, we just don't. And I've worked with a lot of colleagues in the adult realm and they'll say like, well, we don't use the diagnostic test like for aphasia for instance they don't mm. they already know they have aphasia they had a yeah. stroke it's clear on the it's clear on the image where they have mm. the stroke they have aphasia they don't do a lot of those diagnostic tests they go right to functional yes. and that's kind of what we need to do too i think once we feel confident that the child has dld just move past those tests quickly mm. and go into the classroom see what they're doing and use those tests i agree and one of the challenges then, of course, is funding models and funding models yeah. seem to rely on those standardized measures. So it's yes. there's we're fighting wars on all fronts, Tiffany. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's so worth it. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about um, 
clinicians and, and what's involved, but I know that we'll have educators and families that'll be listening in. So what role do you feel that they play as um, family members of people with DLD or, or educators of people with DLD in looking for those early signs of DLD? Is there a way that they can help with picking up on those traits of DLD if there's not screening taking place? You know, what should they be looking for? I think that's that's great because they are missing link and I am so honored I get to speak to teachers all the time I speak to teachers more I think now than I do even speech pathologists about you know what does it look like to have DLD and some of the big misunderstandings is that it's really driven by the child, that their child's lazy, their child yes. doesn't care, the child is unintelligent, the child's mm -hmm. not academically inclined. I've heard all the excuses. I think teachers and parents can maybe instead of first going to motivation as the the prob the quote unquote problem mm -hmm. or even their own self like oh i haven't done enough mm -hmm. to first go to what is the child's language ability you know how does that look compared to peers and you know liberally referring to a speech language pathologist and saying mm -hmm. i have some concerns whether it's a phone consultation uh you know whatever it takes really going away from those other reasons that we give children when they're struggling mm -hmm. and go to the first reason being do they have a language problem you know is it a language impairment is it a language disorder and once you rule that out then go to some other things whereas i feel like what happens is first we look at all these other aspects first and then we don't get to the language first so yeah. looking at language first is one of the best things i think that parents and educators can do is think about language variation think about individual differences in language first as the motivation or as the underlying cause of some of the difficulties children are having. Oh, look, you must be reading my mind because I think the end of every presentation I ever have given in a school, it's, if you remember nothing else, remember the tall crazy man saying to you, maybe it's language because just maybe it's language. And no one thinks that. Who, who would have thought? Yeah. No, and it's not a first port of call. I think, um, probably 10 or 15 years ago, it was ADHD. Yeah. And we've had a movement on maybe it's autism. And now we're having more in the auditory processing and working memory seems to come up in education a lot. Um, but at no point in all of this has anybody just kind of got the maybe it's language and we actually have people that can do something that helps with that. <laughs> Um, right. Because, you know, what does a speech pathologist do? Yeah, <laughs> they do exactly. speech, they don't do language, they do speech. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we need a rebranding at some point, don't we? Totally. Oh, gosh, look, um, I'm so excited by what we've talked about, because I think that if you spoke to me a few years ago, I was one of the language screening naysayers, where I was looking at the research going, no, we shouldn't be language screening, we should have effective systems in place and this and that. But what I've come to realise is people are screening, so people need to know what are the best protocols to be looking at. I know that one of the areas I've certainly looked at is that non-word repetition and sentence formulation, which helps with some of that grammatical marker, um, you know, looking for grammar that you were talking about. And if anybody's listening, hasn't listened to Sam Calder's podcast previously this year, that um, they may be interested in hearing Sam's discussion around grammar in the early years and how we can... Um, how we can use that information to help inform intervention. Um, but it's also a key aspect of diagnosis as well. Um, there's so much that, you know, we can be looking for now. And I think that I've become more balanced in my approach, which is whilst there is some limitations in our tools, that doesn't mean that the concept isn't worth pursuing. Um, and so if we can actually work 
um, with clinicians and researchers and those key stakeholders like teachers and um, parents or caregivers, we can actually see potentially a much brighter future for people with DLD because we'll get earlier diagnosis. Absolutely. I think, I think it's a glass half empty, half full situation, frankly, right now. Yeah. And I tend to look at the half full because I yeah. think we can keep filling that glass. We just need to work with the stakeholders, mm -hmm. uh, the teachers, the parents, the, and the frameworks that exist. And if we can you know, learn from, the, I really think we have a lot to learn from the medical field. They've done so much of implementation of screening. Yeah. They're the scre screening pros. I mean, we all go in mm -hmm. for screening. As we get older, we go in for further screening. Yep. And we appreciate that screening. We want that screening yes. and but it's taken medical field a long time to figure out how do we do that what are the facilitators what are the barriers how yes. can we meet the patient where they are and screen in the best way I think we can do that as a field too we have a long way to go but we can learn and do that in yeah. a better way for these children yeah absolutely so in your opinion what do you hope to see in the future for DLD in the U.S. and around the world either clinically research service delivery what are your hopes and dreams my okay this is a, a good question uh I okay so first <laughs> First, I would like to see um, more more uh, common knowledge about what DLD is. Yes. So it's more common like dyslexia. I'd like it to be something that just rolls off everyone's tongue, you know, mm -hmm. that people talk, anyone on the street, you, you say, have you heard of dyslexia? They have. Yes. They have absolutely heard of dyslexia. Um, I would like there to be less shame associated yeah. with struggling with language. I think we have a long way to go there, but I'd like to see that. I would like it to see, I'd like to for all kindergartners to be screened mm. for DLD just and as I'd like them to be screened for dyslexia mm. and then I would like to see a framework across the world that supports these children over time and mm. supports their families just some small small yeah. little <laughs> little things to work on Tiffany just a but, little <laughs> but we're so lucky that we do have such passionate um, researchers internationally, we've got clinicians, and for those people, you know, who um, are interested in raising awareness, we've got Rattled or Raising Awareness of Developmental Language Disorder. Um, you know, we've got so many groups of people coming together to help raise awareness. I think that it can only lead to a much brighter future. Right. And we've I been think. part of the group here working on DLD and me. So, of course, uh, yes, you know, creating US. that content too in the US and, yes. and Canada. So uh, it's been a it's been a very exciting time to think more about research to science, uh, practice to research and research to practice. practice. Yeah, absolutely. And how they feed into each mm -hmm. other is so key mm -hmm. um, because at the DLD project, we often talk about the fact that the research sits in the hands of just a few, you know, it does, it's people who can access those journals and interpret those journal articles and that um, the role that we have in implementation science is so key, which is while you'll see more memes and vlogs and things like that around research coming out from us very soon, uh, because we want people to be consumers of that information and know how to make meaning of it. It's just, yeah, I think we've got such a big responsibility as, as researchers and clinicians to share that, so. I've been a co author on a paper on translational science that we can yes. also link if you want to in the resources yeah, I'd love to. just thinking like that bigger broad on you know have implementation under translational science of course this podcast is translational science so it's, yeah, it's really course. fun to do yeah yeah exactly so as we're drawing to close I've got one more question for you at the DLD project we're really focused on self-care and finding time to breathe in our very busy days as a researcher and clinician supporting children with DLD
ELD, you know, at that school level and or kindergarten level, as well as all the other things you do, what do you do to look after yourself? Well, this has been a, a, a side interest of mine for quite some time is to thinking about self-care and how to reduce burnout, because I think burnout is so high, not only as a clinician, but as a researcher. And we talked about all these goals we're trying to meet, and it can be exhausting. And also, it can get you down when you think about how far we have to go. Um, And so I've recently taken an online course from a colleague, a friend, actually, who taught a course on Mm self-compassion, which is really... uh, you know, you hear a lot about meditation, mindfulness, exercise, eating healthy, all those things are important, but self-compassion is another kind of limb in the self-care world. And self-compassion is how you talk to yourself. So what are the inter- what's the internal dialogue you have and how hard you are on yourself? I know as clinicians and researchers, we can be really hard on ourselves. We're perfectionists. We want to do the right thing. We want to consistently do the best thing. And that self-talk can, can get down. You can start to feel like you're not doing enough, feel guilty. Um, and just feel frustrated. And so self-compassion is how do we turn the compassion we give to the people in our lives and our clients and our collaborators and our friends, how do we turn that to ourselves? So whenever, you know, if a, if someone comes to you as a friend and says, oh, I had a really bad day, I made a mistake on XYZ, or I didn't do enough for this kiddo, and um, you know, what would you say to them? You would say, oh, you know, everyone has a bad day. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I know you'll do better next time. And, you know, and you would reframe it. But we often don't give that same self talk to ourselves. (laughs) We don't give that same (laughs) compassion. So it's basically the idea that when we're feeling down, kind of step outside and try to give yourself the same pep talk that you would Mm -hmm. give a friend. And so it's kind of reframing some of that internal talk. And I've been thinking about that. And I guess I just took a five-week class on on it. There's a book by Kristen Neff, which is fantastic on Mm self-compassion and what is the research. And, uh, you know, she's a social psychologist, so she does a lot of work in this area. So I think self-compassion is a self-care that I'm thinking about lately. It's my latest thinking. Yeah, great advice. I think that we can all learn a lot. And the self-compassion work is so interesting that way too, because it shows that the more self-compassion you have, yeah. then the more compassion you give give to others, just like self-care. It's filling your cup. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So just to recap on today's podcast, what are the key points you'd really like our listeners to take away from our chat? A few key points. So one is that children with DLD are likely to have dyslexia. And children with dyslexia are likely to have DLD. So a focus in both areas is critical. Um, The next one would be that I think we have uh, a role in screening for DLD. I think we have a lot of work to do, but the benefits, in my opinion, outweigh the cons for screening. Mm -hmm. The more we work towards screening, the more likely we'll catch kids early. We can provide them the support they need in language, and that support in turn will help them not only improve their language over time, but improve their reading comprehension. It also gives them that person uh, or a group of people that can support them in their social emotional development over time and hopefully destigmatize DLD. I invited you today because I really felt like I'm very passionate about what you write about, but I've, I feel like learned something from you today because you've breathed life into what I read and what you write about. And I think that's so important. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said that dyslexia and DLD were mutually exclusive. You know, that the dyslexia was that you 
only diagnosed when he'd ruled out everything else. And if a child had literacy difficulties, it was explained by the DLD. But I think particularly through my PhD research and studies, I'm discovering that actually I think I really agree with that model that you're presenting with a dual diagnosis, because I think the supports that need to be in place for both conditions actually don't happen if you just have one or the other. That, that dual diagnosis is actually potentially the future, I think, for clinicians in this space. So I've complete, I've changed my opinion, I think, oh, that's, <laughs> over that's, years. I, I love you how know. you stated that. It's just so true, everything about it. Yeah, and I think it's important to grow and change. And I hope that by people listening today, they will grow and change in their opinions as well. So thank you so much for your time today, Tiffany. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. How lucky are we to have Dr. Hogan on the DLD Awareness Raising Dream Team? She is amazing. What a very, very intelligent woman. Uh, we know screening is quite a controversial topic. So very interested to see, has your position changed after today's podcast? Please let us know. We, we want to know um, via email at connect at the dldproject.com. And don't forget to head to our website for more information on DLD. We've got resources and training up there at thedldproject.com. Thank you for joining us. Of course, together we are creating a world where people with DLD are recognized, understood and empowered to live their best life.